Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, I'm Helen Joyce, the finance editor of The Economist. Welcome to Money Talks. Coming up on the programme, Donald Trump plans steely tariffs. Donald Trump's view of trade essentially has, you know, imports bad, exports good. And the number of rich women is rising. Where and how will they invest their money? Women show far more interest than men in so-called sustainable investing, so keeping their values in mind when they invest. First, are we on the brink of a trade war? Samaya Keynes, our economics correspondent, is here to tell us what's going on. Hello. Well, exciting times in the world of trade. On March 1st, it emerged that President Donald Trump wants to impose tariffs of 25% on all imports of steel into America and tariffs of 10% on all aluminium imports. So those are large numbers and they're very, very broad. And and so a few things about this. The, the first is that he hasn't signed a document yet. So we don't actually have the legal details of what he's going to do. It's all quite vague. The second thing is that obviously there's a lot of uncertainty about whether it will actually happen, uh, linked to the fact that we don't have a legal document. Here's Wilbur Ross, the Commerce Secretary, who was questioned about whether it would actually happen. Whatever his final decision is, is what will happen. Meaning this isn't a done deal. I didn't say that. I just said what he has said, he has said. If he says something different, it'll be something different. I have no reason to think he's going to change. <laughs> what does this mean? You just said, well, he may say this and he may say that. No, I didn't say that. I said he is the one who makes the decision. Right. He has made a decision at this point, 25 and 10. If he, for some reason, should change his mind, then it'll change. Are you? I have no reason to believe he's going to change his mind. Some people, like Wilbur Ross, don't think this is going to be much of a big deal. What I would like to do, though, is to emphasize again the limited impact. This is a can of Campbell's soup. There's in the can of Campbell's soup, there's about 2.6 cents, 2.6 pennies worth of steel. So if that goes up by 25%, that's about six-tenths of one cent on the price of a can of Campbell's soup. Well, I just bought this can today at a 7-Eleven down here, and the price was $1.99. So who in the world is going to be too bothered by six-tenths of a cent? So all this hysteria... Is a lot to do about nothing. And clearly on one level he's right, making one or two inputs a bit more expensive in the grand scheme of things is not going to bring down the American economy. But I'm not sure it's a great idea to minimise the costs of this. You know, just as 
trade has created losers, and, and that's presumably one of the things that the Trump administration is so upset about, new restrictions also create losers, and they will be concentrated in certain industries, in certain places that are very reliant on, on those imported inputs and vulnerable to an increase in prices of aluminium and steel. So the worry with things like tariffs is that it's not just one thing that happens, it's that there's a a knock-on effect that other countries respond. Have we heard anything from other countries about what they might do? Without the specific details of what these are, countries like Canada and Mexico, they haven't been specific about what they'll do. They have said that they will hit back quickly and decisively if they are hit. The EU has been much more specific. It's got this list of products that it expects to retaliate very quickly with. So um, it's about a third industrial products, a third agricultural products, and a third steel products. And so they're essentially saying, if you hit us, we'll hit you back very, very quickly. We're not going to wait to take out a formal dispute at the World Trade Organization. We're going to hit back quickly. And they're going to choose products Strategically, they're going to hit ones in key Republican states. An example is um, bourbon from Kentucky, Mitch McConnell's state, and also Harley-Davidson's from Wisconsin, Paul Ryan's state. They're being fairly canny, um, and, and they're expecting that this will hurt Donald Trump's constituents. Here's Peter Navarro, one of the president's trade advisors, giving his views on whether other countries will hit back. I don't believe any country in the world is going to retaliate for the simple reason that we are the most lucrative and biggest market in the world. Mr. Navarro, do you really believe that? Yes, I do. And let's let's give it some perspective. We have the lowest tariffs in the world. We have the lowest non-tariff barriers. We are the free tradingest nation of the world. And what do we get for that? We don't get fair and reciprocal trade. We get every year a half a trillion dollar trade deficit that transfers our wealth to other countries and basically offshores our jobs and our factories. And all we are asking for is fair and reciprocal trade. Now, in this particular So have we case, heard from either Donald Trump or one of his advisors why America is going to take some step like this? This is part of an investigation that was triggered about a year ago, looking into whether imports of steel and aluminium are threats to American national security. And if that sounds a bit odd, it is. This is very unusual. It's an arcane law from the 1960s that gives the president really quite unlimited powers to do whatever he wants if he deems imports to be a threat. A few weeks ago, the Commerce Department released its reports with these recommendations. So the reports found that, yes, imports of steel are a threat to national security, so so too of aluminium. And therefore, they recommended tariffs of 24% on everyone or two other kind of effectively similar options um, and tariffs of 7.7% on aluminium. I think, though, from most people's perspectives, it looks as though the president wants to impose trade restrictions on steel and aluminium, and he is using this as a justification. I think given that most of the imports coming in of steel come from America's allies, it's quite difficult to make the case that, you know, America's got this dependence on hostile countries. I spoke to Jennifer Hillman, who's a professor of international law at Georgetown University and also a previous judge at the World Trade Organization, about what she thought about the case. To me, the most striking thing was, what is the point of a national security investigation? In the past, it's been pretty clear that the decisions to invoke this law were based on the notion that the United States should not be overly reliant on imports from countries that we consider to be in some way untrustworthy or potentially adversarial. 
and yet you've come down in this case, for example, of steel, a product in which imports account for, in the flat-rolled area, about 20% of total volume sold in the United States, so not a significant reliance on imports. And then if we look at where do we import this steel from, our number one source of supply is Canada, followed by Europe, followed by Japan and Mexico, certainly not countries that we would typically put on the list of um, adversarial or somehow untrustworthy trading partners. So a little bit striking, particularly in the area of steel, um, that you nonetheless come to the conclusion that the United States is threatened, um, its national security is threatened uh, by imports of steel. The other thing that was striking, at least to me, is that the case on aluminum from a national security perspective looks actually quite different. Because I think on the aluminum side, you can honestly say that the United States is heavily dependent on imports. Imports are more than 75, 80%, if not 90 um, in some areas of aluminum. We have a very limited number of smelters, particularly that can make aerospace-grade aluminum. And our import sources are, yes, Canada, um, not an adversarial or untrustworthy um, source, but also China and Russia. People have to understand our country on trade has been ripped off by virtually every country in the world, whether it's friend or enemy. Everybody. Does this justification of national security complicate efforts by other countries, for example, to retaliate? I don't think you're going to have a trade war now. Essentially, by linking these restrictions to national security, the Trump administration has kind of pressed the nuclear button of trade options. Within the rulebook, there are situations where you can apply new tariffs and other countries can respond very quickly to those, but not in this case. This is this kind of very vague catch-all law which essentially says you can do whatever you want. And in the past, countries have used it very, very responsibly because they've known that if you start using it, if you start saying we can do this on the grounds of national security, then that opens this Pandora's box and everyone else starts doing the same. The problem that other countries face now is that they can file a dispute at the World Trade Organization. They can sort of say, no, America, you're not playing by the rules. But the problem with that is that the law is so broadly defined that they might very well lose and also it will take a very long time. So what they're having to think about doing is, is retaliate much more quickly. And there the problem is that there just isn't really a way of doing that and sticking within the rules. So to show Donald Trump that he's breaking the rules, there's effectively no way of sanctioning him and sticking to the rule book. This sounds very serious. Trade wars can kind of escalate out of rather small beginnings. Yeah, and I think anyone following Donald Trump's Twitter feed would be quite concerned that it, it would escalate. This morning, in a series of tweets, the president defended his plan, saying the U.S. must protect American steel. But the European that... Union, we can't do business in there. They don't allow. They have trade barriers that are worse than tariffs. They also have tariffs, by the way, but they have trade barriers far worse than tariffs. And if they want to do something, we'll just tax their cars that they send in here like water. So we may have friends, but remember this. We lost over the last number of years $800 billion a year. Not, not a half a million dollars, not 12 cents. We lost $800 billion a year on trade. Not going to happen. We got to get it back. So he thinks it's very unfair that America applies 2.5% tariffs on, on European cars going into America while they apply 10% 
tariffs on American cars going into there. And so, you know, he, he's game to raise tariffs on cars and and that is the kind of escalation that, that one might worry about. And, you know, having spent the weekend reading up on American trade law, he has quite a lot of power. If he wants to do it in the short run, it's it's going to be quite difficult to stop him. According to President Trump's tweets, uh, when one country is down compared with another, as in it has a deficit, it is importing more than it exports. That's like just obviously bad. It's losing. He says, you know, we are losing many billions of dollars. And if we are down 100 billion with a certain country and they get cute and we don't trade with them anymore, we just win. We win big. Take us right back. Don't worry about the WTO rules or anything. Why is that wrong? What's, what's he saying that's wrong? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so Donald Trump's view of trade essentially has, you know, imports bad, exports good. If you look at your Econ 101, how GDP is calculated, essentially there's this bit where gross domestic product is, is, a, is a bunch of things and then you do plus exports minus imports, right? And, and that kind of equation is, I think, one of the reasons why economists like Peter Navarro think that imports are somehow detracting from, you know, America's might. The reason that subtraction happens is that otherwise you would double count imports because consumption includes consumption of imported goods. So there's this kind of confusion between an accounting formula and, and reality. Going back to, you know, I guess the principles that this paper was was founded on, Trade essentially allows two contracting parties to swap stuff and they will only do so if it's kind of good for them, if it will make both parties better off. Fundamentally, the global rules-based system of trade is supposed to enable people to do that in a kind of undistorting way. And it's not perfect. There are plenty of distortions there. There are plenty of failures. But fundamentally, allowing people to trade without putting kind of artificial barriers is kind of a good thing, right? It, it's sort of a, a freedom. You know, in the same way that we would never say that you should stop technological progress because there are losers, you wouldn't really say that you should stop the flows of trade because there are losers. So we've had our Econ 101 lesson with Samaya and we can read more in this week's issue where she's going to be writing all about trade and the Trump measures. Lucky you. <laughs> Finally, March the 8th is International Women's Day. On this day every year, we hear about gaps, gender gaps between men and women. But one gap is gradually closing, the wealth gap. Women are getting richer. Sasha Nauta is our finance correspondent. Sasha, why is this shift happening? Well, Helen, the shift is happening for several reasons. I mean, firstly, and most obviously, women are, are far more likely to be in paid work than they were a generation ago and therefore to make their own wealth. Um, but secondly, um, women are, are, are inheriting wealth both as, as daughters, where perhaps in previous generations only sons would have had inherited, um, but also as wives, because most women marry men that are slightly older, and of course men live shorter lives, so, so most of us women will end up um, inheriting wealth from men. Now we've got the baby boomers obviously now hitting their their dying years, so to speak, um, and therefore there will be a very large transfer uh, moving initially to their to, to, to their spouses. Um, it's hard to put a figure on all this, but you could you could safely say that the majority of the wealth transfer in the coming decades will be going to women because of this. And what differences are there between rich men and rich women when it comes to handling money? 
Yeah, that's a really interesting one. I mean, the the, the wealth management industry is, is very much set up around rich men. And the presumption is that there is no difference with rich women. If you look a little bit more closely, though, um, wealth managers are, are, are starting to pick on actually some very important differences. One of them is that women are more likely to say that the reason they invest is to achieve tangible goals. So for example, sending your kids to college or retiring at 60 or or buying a house. Men are more likely to say that their primary goal is to outperform the market. Now you you may think that's that that doesn't make much of a difference, but actually from a from a wealth manager point of view, both in terms of how you create a product, but more importantly, how you communicate with your customers, it actually makes a big difference. Another difference, if I can just pick one out, is that women show far more interest than men in so-called sustainable investing, so keeping their values in mind when they invest. So thinking about their values in terms of the firms that they're investing in or in what those firms do or what? Well, the most developed form of this value-based investing is, is, is green investing, which people might know, where you look at the, the carbon footprint of a firm, both in its supply chain, but also, for example, in the impact that its products um, might have. Um, that's a very obvious way of using your values. A more recent one is using the value of gender equality. So what you're now starting to see, and it's so-called gender lens investing, is that investors say, actually, I'd like to know what the impact of my investment portfolio is on women and girls. And that, again, can come in any number of intensities. Most likely, you could say, I want to know whether there are women at all on the boards of the companies that I invest in. And if not, then I'd like to divest from those companies. So is the shift to gender lens investing being driven entirely by the fact that it's more women who have money and that's what they're looking to do or are men too? Thankfully, it is the latter. You might think it's just women, but it's very much, there's very much an interest amongst men um, as well, which gives us uh, hope for the future. Thanks, Sasha. Thanks. If you've got any thoughts on President Trump's plans for steel and aluminium tariffs or investments for women, please get in touch via Twitter at Economist Radio or email us at radio at That's all for this episode of Money Talks. To read more about everything we've discussed, pick up the forthcoming issue of The Economist or visit our website at economist.com. I'm Helen Joyce. In London, this is The Economist. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.